This is episode 66 with award-winning author Florence Williams. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. Chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you want to spend more time outside in nature. This is why I'm excited to have on an author I've been recommending for a while. Florence Williams recently wrote The Nature Fix. It's a book that uses science to prove why nature makes us happier, healthier, and more creative. We talk about why that is. She also shares some new research that's informing why we should still keep getting outside even more. She makes a great case for recess. She also shares how she got the wild idea to use science to write about the things really near and dear to her. We also talk about how if you work a nine to five, you can use nature fix research to get more joy out of your everyday and prove to your bosses why you need to get outside a little bit more. I hope you enjoy this show. All right, Florence Williams, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. So excited to have you on. Thanks so much, Shelby. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we've sent your book to so many people. So I just wanted to start with, you know, any new research you've come up with since you wrote The Nature Fix that, you know, either surprise you or, you know, that's actually informed policy. Like maybe there's more recess or I, I have no idea, but I'd love to hear about it. I love thinking my work can actually influence policy. I don't know if it happens very often, but I did have this really cool experience uh, last week when I gave a talk in Valparaiso, Indiana. I was part of a community reads program where they selected my book. And as part of that, I got to speak to a group of middle schoolers, specifically 150 sixth graders, which I don't get to do very often. And it's so fun to talk to them. And you know, one of the things I asked them was, do you guys get enough recess? And this girl raised her hand and she said, well, actually, we don't get any recess. And I was like, what? You get no recess? Zero recess? And they were like, yeah, we get zero recess. And um, I was psyched because the principal was in the room <laughs> and I presented all this data showing that, you know, when kids do get enough recess, they run around, they come back to the classroom and they actually learn better. Their test scores are better. They can sit still. There's less bullying. Um, they're funner to be around. They're nicer and polite to each other. And, uh, and, and so I was really psyched that the principal actually got to hear all that. And then Later that evening, I gave a talk and a fifth grader was there and she wrote a letter to her principal that she later showed me and it was begging her her principal for, for recess also. So I don't know if it's going to work, but I have this, you know, I have this hope that maybe some small changes were affected that day in Valparaiso. <laughs> I love that. Well, well, then this is a selfish question, but let's say, you know, I work in a nine to five office. Some of our listeners do. Anything we can throw out to our bosses or coworkers to say like, hey, this is why we need to spend more time outside, like any big general stats that we could just start with? Yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of research on this. And it's been shown that even, even these quick micro breaks where people are doing a task at their desk and they look out onto greenery, like out a window, um, they actually come back to their tasks and they're like 40% more accurate in what they're doing. Um, their attention span is better. 
Um, they're, they're slightly more creative. You know, uh, your brain is like a muscle. And when you can relax parts of it and give parts of it a small break, when you go back to doing your task, it's like you're stronger and you're fresher. Um, obviously, you know, if, if you can get more than a couple of seconds of looking at a window, it's better. There's kind of a dose effect. So it's been shown that even 15 minutes of, of time outside can actually lower your blood pressure. It can reduce your stress hormones. Um, it can boost your mood and make you feel fewer feelings of frustration. I mean, all of these things are going to make you a better employee. So like Mark Zuckerberg at mm. Facebook, you know, they have this amazing rooftop garden, you know, and it's not, it's not really for the benefit of well-being of employees. It's really because the research has shown that it actually makes you more productive <laughs> and it makes you more creative. It makes you a better employee when you can walk around outside. So Mark Zuckerberg, like he takes employees outside for walking meetings and that's what he does. And now you have like Amazon, you know, is building these greenhouses in downtown Seattle. I think really kind of enlightened companies are, are starting to really figure this out. That's awesome. Any any like other stories that people have written you, just like life changing experiences from reading your book or things that they've started incorporating that you found really interesting that have stuck out? I get a surprising amount of fan mail, and I have to tell you, Shelby, it really surprised me at first because I thought when I wrote this book, the message was sort of obvious. It was like, yeah, go outside, you'll feel better, you'll feel healthier. I was like, <laughs> who's going to read this? Everyone already knows this. <laughs> But I get so much mail from people saying, I read your book and now I go outside, which means they really weren't going outside before, which seems crazy. And so, I, yeah, I get, for example, I got, a, I got a letter recently from a cancer patient, a young cancer patient, a guy in his 40s. He's got a terminal diagnosis. And he said that since reading my book, he actually goes to the beach every day. And he does this thing where he dances with cranes. Like there are these birds on the beach mm. and now he he dances with them. And he actually sent me a video of him dancing with these cranes. And I have to say, I was just, you know, in tears watching it. And I just, I love thinking that I have changed some people's days and their lives for the better. It's incredibly moving to me. I think it's awesome. So I, I guess because a lot of listeners probably are working at a desk job, maybe some don't have windows. You know, what if you live in a city, you work at a desk, you don't have windows? What would be kind of the recommended protocol from the time you wake <laughs> up to the time you go to bed if you kind of work the typical nine to five and you just need to add a little bit more of these elements of nature into your life? Okay, so it's sad. If you don't work near natural daylight or a window, I feel sorry for you. Um, but there are things you can do. <laughs> First of all, how do you get to work? You know, if, is there any way that you can walk, you know, along a tree-lined street for at least part of your commute? Like get off your subway or your bus early, walk along a tree-lined street, you know, try to get that benefit so that when you do get to work, you're a little bit um, fresher, you know, a little bit happier. And then take breaks. You know, in Finland, I interviewed these teachers in Finland about why their kids are so successful there. Why do they have the highest test scores in the world? And there are a lot of theories about that. But what, what you don't generally hear is what these teachers told me, which is that for every 45 minutes of instruction, these kids are getting 15 minutes of recess. So they get like five oh. recesses a day. So, you know, probably that's unrealistic for you to take 15-minute breaks every hour. But, you know, if you can get out on your lunch break, if you can get out on your lunch break and go sit in the sun somewhere or go sit under a tree, go listen to some bird song. Um, you know, even if the weather's crappy, 
the research has shown that if you go outside, you still come back with a, a better memory and a better working brain, which seems counterintuitive, but it seems to be true. The bird song. I want to go back to that because I was just in Costa Rica for the week. I lived pretty much on the beach in San Diego, but I felt infinitely better in Costa Rica. Can I have your life? That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> you have a pretty good life too, Florence. I'm, I'm really lucky right now. I live in this condo complex though. It was on the beach, but there's like Wi-Fi everywhere. Like if I, if I turn on my Wi-Fi, there's like a hundred networks <laughs> and hotels nearby. And, and I just feel a little weird when I go onto the sand, I instantly feel better. So, but mm -hmm. in Costa Rica, there are these sounds. So let's first, I want to ask you about grounding, but I want to talk to you about sounds. You talked in your book about birdsong and why birdsong was so influential, but is there, is there any other sounds that are really good? Like howler monkey sounds. I mean, howler <laughs> monkeys make like the worst sound ever. It's like, ha, ah. but um, I can't really do a good impersonation. Sorry. But. Yeah. There is some really interesting research on this and it does matter what kind of sound it is. So birdsong has been shown to improve your alertness and your sense of well-being, which kind of makes sense because when you can hear birdsong, you know that everything is kind of right with the world, right? Mm. There's not a huge storm coming yeah. in. There's not some like crazy predator lurking right next to you. Um, there's something reassuring about birdsong. But if you really drill down, and some researchers have done this, and play different kinds of birdsong for people and record kind of how they report feeling – it's the sing-songy, trilly, kind of pretty bird song that makes people feel the best. And if they're listening to something raspy <laughs> and sort of grating, you know, like a jay or a magpie, they, they actually don't report it being that beneficial. So there does seem to be you know, a range. Yeah. So if you, and, you know, and, and there are these apps now that you can actually put on while you're doing something and it might actually increase your alertness or your focus. But it's good to know that it's the pretty bird song <laughs> that seems to have the most benefits. So go for the go for the trills and the, the pretty songs. I love that. And not like the screaming bird shrilling sound. So what about smells? Like why are certain tree smells or botanical smells maybe better than others? Like is there is there research that says, you know, flowers are better than pine. I know there was a lot of research in your book about certain trees in Japan, so maybe you can talk about that. But I'm wondering, you know, when I go to Hawaii or tropical places, mm. the smell is just so invigorating and amazing. Yeah. Is, is there yeah. research about that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think there is kind of a little bit. I don't know if we're able to get super granular with it, but... Um, you know, the the nose is such an interesting organ. I mean, when we smell something, it's kind of this direct pathway to our brain. Um, it's, a, it's a sense that, that hits us super quickly and can change our behavior and our mood almost instantaneously. And I'm sure we've all had that experience where we, we smell something and all of a sudden we just feel different because maybe it's a smell from our past. You know, this is so Proustian. Right, it can really just bring back these very specific memories and very specific emotions. It just hits our emotional center of our brain really quickly. And you know, most of our lives when we live in cities and we go about our kind of crazy modern world, we're actually kind of trying to block out our senses. You know, we're too overstimulated and the smells of the city are often terrible. <laughs> you know, it's exhaust or it's garbage or dog poop or whatever it is. Um, and so we kind of shut down. But when we go into a beautiful nature setting, 
um, a place filled with like the pine trees or the cypress trees that they have in Japan. And and I describe that smell as being kind of like vapor rub meets Christmas tree. You know, it's this super, you use the word invigorating and that's what it's like. It's like you want, it, you can almost feel more oxygen entering your nose when you have a smell like that. Um, it makes you feel super alive and super energized. Um, and so there's something about those cypress trees and the pine trees that seem really extra powerful. And I think that those trees have been shown to have compounds like limonenes, these very um, almost cypressy, citrusy kinds of smells that have been shown to kind of wake us up, make us behave in more generous ways. In fact, there's research in retail psych psychology showing that when people go into a store that smells like oranges, they spend more money. <laughs> so that's why the body shop used to smell so terrible, but like oranges. Oh, God. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So they change our behavior, these smells. <laughs> I love it. I've been seeing people use tree wallpaper, you know, mostly outdoor retailers, but I, th I think it's really cool. Yeah. And yeah. projecting, you know, there's a, there's a part in your book where you talk about hotels that are projecting nature images on the wall as well. Right. And actually there are restrooms in petrol stations in England that are piping birdsong into the bathrooms because that relaxes people wow. and makes them spend more money <laughs> when they go back to the convenience store part of the gas station. That's so interesting because the gas stations in the U.S. smell They're terrible so and do not have any good sounds coming out of them. Exactly. And how that would really make a difference is hard to believe because they're still going to be disgusting. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting. You know, I'm a surfer and and I know your book wasn't, you know, about ocean therapy, but I'm I'm curious like any research on just grounding. Like when I walk on the beach, you know, barefoot, it feels so good. And I I instantly can turn a sour day or like a day full of anxiety and lots of to do. I can I completely calm down, not when I have shoes on, but when I literally have physical feet on sand. Is there, did you study any of that? Well, I totally believe you. And I have felt similarly, but I didn't talk a lot about grounding because I, I didn't really find a lot of rigorous science in that category, but it makes sense to me. I mean, we have an electrical charge in our bodies. The earth has an electrical charge. You know, we go through our days wearing very thick soled shoes all the time. Um, you know, that, that don't really transmit those electrons, right? And so when we take our shoes off, I think there can be some kind of powerful exchange. I know that when I just reach over and sort of lean on a rock, like a huge boulder or lie on a huge boulder, I feel the same way. It's like I, I suddenly feel really calm and sort of held by that space. Um, I'm not sure if the science is there to really back up those feelings. But but anecdotally, I totally believe you, Shelby. So keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm kind of a hippie deep at heart. So so Florence, have you ever surfed before? I boogie boarded. Does that count? <laughs> I love boogie boarding. <laughs> awesome. Well, when you come to San Diego, I offer this to all my guests. I will take you surfing with oh, the Surf Diva Surf School. Oh, you give me a lesson? I want one. Yes. That'd be great. We literally just took Amy Vitale in Costa Rica surfing. She's oh the National God. Geographic writer and environmental advocate. And that was on her bucket list. And now she's a surfer. But I want to know, you know, I heard this one theory that like, that it's sort of related to waterfall theory that 
and I'm going to probably butcher this, so maybe you can help me out, but that when waves break, they release negative ions. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of theory about like healing around waterfalls. So then there was a surfer in a book who I cannot find. I've like literally researched all over for the scientist Venzin Wu, who was saying that, well, then if you get barreled, which is when you're inside of a breaking wave, that's when like the maximum, so it'd be like being inside of a waterfall, mm -hmm. the maximum amount of negative ions are released and you just feel incredibly good. And that's why surfers strive for getting barreled. <laughs> awesome. Any, any idea where I could find that to back that up? <laughs> um, you know, again, I, I didn't find a lot of research on negative ions, but I've heard that theory a bunch. I'm, I'm not an ocean surfer, but I am a kayaker. I'm a river kayaker. You know, nice. I do, I surf waves and rivers. So similar. It's similar, you know, you, you get in your boat on those, you know, on the water, you're in the current, there's something that feels really magical. I even like just, you know, sometimes sitting or picnicking next to a flowing river. I, again, I totally believe it. Um, again, you know, we're, we're filled with the electrical charges. And so, you know, it makes sense on some level that our, our electrical bonds are kind of interacting and our electrons are moving around. Um, and, and, you know, surfers are so famous for being mystical and um, getting into a flow state, you know, they, they produce these alpha waves um, when their brains are, are sort of studied. And, and there's something about alpha waves that, um, you know, an alpha wave makes you feel both calm and alert at the same time, which is kind of nirvana. You know, if you think about it, it's, it's a brain wave that we should mm. all aspire to. It, they're not so easy to get. But I think surfers get them a lot. And so do Buddhist monks. Um, so do poets, artists, when they're really kind of in the zone working, same thing. So uh, the surfers are on to something, Shelby. I believe it. Well, I think, you know, kayaking's pretty gnarly. So I'm impressed that you do that, especially in waves. <laughs> they're not huge waves. They're small waves, but thank you. <laughs> This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand that's big on protecting where we play outside. As stewards of the outdoors, REI gives away 70% of all profits back to the outdoors. Since 1976, REI has invested more than $77 million through partner nonprofits to create, improve, and sustain access for all to inspiring outdoor places. They're also incredibly eco-friendly. REI uses 100% renewable energy to operate, and they built the first largest and most sustainable net zero energy and LED platinum distribution center in the country. On top of that, REI's partnered with over 66 brands in the outdoor industry to enhance the sustainability of their products. Their motto, a life outdoors is a life well lived, is something I definitely stand by. You can learn more, take classes, go on experiences, find a store near you, and get the gear you want to get outside at REI.com. I've interviewed James Nestor before, and he's also a science writer who's, who's written books like Deep. I, I'm just curious about your story, because writing about science in a way that is really fun and enjoyable is, is really hard. So how did you get the wild idea to sort of write about the things you write about? Hmm. Well, I've been a journalist forever. I mean, I was like the editor of my high school paper. I've always liked writing. But to tell you the truth, I was never that interested in science. 
And maybe that kind of helped me out because I'm not a scientist and I don't think like a scientist and I don't write like a scientist. <laughs> I think that when I am really, really interested in something, I want to know how it works and I want to know why it works. And so my interest in science came kind of later in life um, as a way to really kind of enrich my writing and enrich kind of the experiences of the world that I was trying to figure out. And so I, I think I... I understand how non-scientists read and how non-scientists think. And so I can translate the science now. It takes me, it still takes me a long time to really understand science. I mean, I actually, I went back to school and I, I was a fellow at the University of Colorado Center of Environmental Journalism. And I spent a whole year oh, nice. auditing classes that I had avoided, you know, in college. Like I took I took cell biology and I took physiology and I took chemistry. I took this stuff that I had avoided because I suddenly was really, really interested in how things worked. Um, so I think I just came at it with a little bit of a more humanist perspective. And maybe that's been helpful. That's so interesting. One of the other questions I had for you was, you know, how you got the wild idea to write about nature. Yeah. You know, if I understand you, you had to move from, was it Boulder or somewhere in Colorado to to DC? I did. I've, I've, yes, it was very sad. <laughs> um, but I've written about the environment for a really long time. In fact, I was an environmental studies minor in college, along with being an English major. My first job out of school was working for a little tiny environmental newspaper called High Country News in Western rural oh, Colorado. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a great little newspaper. Yeah, I have. But I was writing about policy a lot. I was writing about the Forest Service and the Clean Air Act and, you know, this coal mine going in and what did that mean for the water supply. And at some point, I just got kind of tired of telling that same story over and over again. Like there are good guys and there are bad guys and the resources being harmed. And I wanted to put people back in the equation. And so the profound thing that really happened for me was I started having children and I was hearing that there were toxic chemicals showing up in breast milk. And I was like, what? Pollutants in breast milk? What, you know, where did that come from? And what does that mean for our babies? So it was like, you know, it, was, it became this very, very urgent kind of question of like, how is human health affected by what we are doing to the planet? And it was a way to kind of put people back in those traditional environmental stories and make them, to me, really relevant and urgent. And so that's where it really started for me. So did that spawn the idea for your, your book, Breasts? Yes, that's totally what spawned the idea for my first book. And, and that book is called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. So it was, it was partly motivated by you know what was in my breast milk. And then also there's just a lot of breast cancer in my family. And I had heard that breast mm. cancer rates were rising. Again, I just felt really like personally implicated you know, in, in, in the chemistry of this and the biochemistry of it. And I wanted to know how modern, how else really modern life was changing breasts. And there were all these interesting ways. Like, for example, girls are going through puberty earlier than ever before in the history of the human species. It's like, why the heck is that happening? Why are breasts bigger than ever? You know, what does it mean that so many people are putting silicone implants in their breasts? You know, so, so it had this kind of cultural angle. It had some humor, but it also had these, you know, kind of important environmental health questions of why does what we're doing to our planet get reflected in our bodies and what does that mean for us? 
So what kind of, you know, first of all, my breasts aren't getting any bigger, but <laughs> no, mine are getting smaller, sadly. What are some of the what are some of the environmental toxins we really need to be aware of as women and men? Because men are getting, you know, I've noticed men are getting breasts as well. I don't know if you talk about it in that book. Men are getting breasts too. Yeah, they call them um, moobs, which stands for man boobs. Um, and in fact, reduction surgeries are really, really um, popular, both for both for men and women. Well, I mean, the main reason that breasts are getting bigger in both genders is because of, you know, diet. It's really like the standard Western diet. We're all, all our body parts yeah. are getting bigger, right? We're all getting sort of fatter, unfortunately, as a, as a species in, in the Western world. Um, but there are chemicals too that seem to be particularly kind of interactive with our breast cells and our hormone receptors because we have so many compounds in our modern world that actually mimic estrogen. So there are certain pesticides that mimic estrogen. There are a lot of plastics that contain, contain compounds that mimic uh, estrogens. So for example, BPA, you know, that was like the famous yep. kind of um, Nalgene water bottle chemical. Now it's been replaced with BPS, which really may not be any better, it turns out. This is also in canned foods and canned sodas. Um, there are phthalates that are found in soft plastics like polyvinyl chloride, shower curtains, you know, bath. The rubber ducky is the famous kind of phthalate compound, um, famous compound, famous toy, I should say. Um, these are chemicals that really seem to mess up our hormone receptors. And when our breasts and our breast tissues perceive these compounds, they were like, they're like, oh, that must be an estrogen. Therefore, I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to grow bigger. There's estrogen circulating. It's telling my breasts what to do. It's starting this cascade of biological effects <laughs> that, that aren't really biological effects that we in fact want. And, and they can change our mammary glands in ways that actually make them more susceptible to breast cancer later on. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's a really big deal. I'm I'm excited to read that book. And it's it's really hard, this whole plastic debate. You know, I, I drink out of the right kind of water bottle and I try to eat, you know, organic and salads, but like everything, even my salad is packaged in plastic. And I drive a Prius, but it's like the interior <laughs> has tons of plastic all inside of it. And Yeah, those are phthalates in there actually in your car. It's really hard. Like we think we're being so good, but everything is everything good is packaged in plastic still. Well, so here's the good news. You know, that book was really about how our environment is killing us. <laughs> and it was kind of a downer. But but that's why I was so psyched to write The Nature Fix, because it was a good news story about how our environment can really help us and make us happier and make us healthier. But it's something that is not going to be passive. You know, we have to really cultivate a sense of beauty and a sense of awe we need to spend more time in nature. We need to kind of change how we structure our days um, so that we have more access to nature than we otherwise would in this increasingly kind of disconnected life that we are all living now. So, you know, writing these books, you know, how, how do you, a lot of people probably listening would love to write about science and, and nature, but, you know, I imagine you spend a lot of time researching and in front of your computer at a library, networking, knocking on doors, you know, any tools and tactics of like how you connect with researchers and how you work? Mm. Yeah, good question. It is a lot of work. <laughs> I wish it weren't so much work. I'm thinking about writing another book now and I'm like, oh man, do I really want to sit 
in a chair for that many hours a day. That's the hardest part, frankly, is you have to sit there. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking you this because James Nestor is one of my mentors and he was like, you know, I told him I wanted to write a book about breathing and he's kind of doing the book on breathing. And he's like, Shelby, how much do you really want to spend at the library in yeah. front of a computer? Like, that doesn't seem like you. And I, I kind of yeah. ran away from that book after that. Yeah, it's like, it's butt in chair. It's kind of painful. Um, but, you know, I also have a laptop and I move it around. <laughs> I'll go sit by, you know, the tree in the backyard, and then I'll go sit by the tree in the front yard. And sometimes I'll actually sit outside when I can. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's hard work, you know. I But I, I am a naturally curious person. I love learning new things. I love talking to interesting people. I've been kind of awed by how generous so many scientists are. You know, they're jazzed about mm. the work they're doing. A lot of them want to share it. They want people to know about it, um, and they're happy to talk about it. I, I wish that were true of all scientists. It's not. I think a lot of scientists are still kind of, you know, maybe they've had a bad experience with a journalist, or maybe they're just super busy and, and don't kind of prioritize it. But but I think there are so many out there who understand kind of the power of communication and are happy to talk. And I love spending time with them. It's just super fun. Well, we're really appreciative of what you do because you're writing – things that are informing policy and are going to inform a policy. I think there's probably a lot more CEOs and corporations taking notice of what your book is talking about, which is great. So just for those who really want to write about the outdoors or study the outdoors, any advice you can give to listeners? Yeah, I think if you're interested in writing about the outdoors, you know, one of the best things you can do is find authors that you love to read and keep reading. I think that we're having such a um, – we're, ha- we're, we're living in a period now where it's hard to read, right? Everyone I know is reading less than they used to, including me. I mean, there's so much competition for our time. There are so many podcasts like yours, Shelby, that are wonderful, and they're just distracting us from the books. <laughs> and as a book author, I'm like, don't give up on the books, people. Keep reading. You know, That's just the best way to learn, I think, and the best way to feel really inspired. So you know, I have my favorite writers – um, I love it when I hear that other writers are enjoying my book. You know, it's important, I think, too, to have a community of writers, not just who you read, but who you talk to. Um, so I've always been in kind of a writer's group. I have one here in Washington, D.C. You know, we get together and, um, you know, we're such introverts and we work by ourselves. And it's really nice, I think, to sometimes just have a community of people you can reach out to, even if it's a virtual community. You know, I think there are a lot of online groups now too that are forming and kind of just supporting each other and making it feel a little bit less lonely out there. So what books do you recommend people read or what books are you reading now? What authors do you like? Mm, um, Well, I've always been a fan of uh, Michael Pollan, who kind of does what I do in that he incorporates first person and first-person experience um, with the science. Um, Mary Roach does the same thing and does it with a lot of humor. Um, I was really excited. I actually I just got Michael Pollan's um, new book. I got an advanced reader's copy, so I'm a couple of months ahead of everyone else. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I have an early I have an early lead to his new book, which is called How to Change Your Brain, um, and it's about his experience with psychedelics and kind of the history of psychedelics. And I think that's going to be super fascinating. So I'm excited about that. You know, and I think one of the things Michael Pollan does that I really admire, too, is that he writes about science that's really kind of useful in people's everyday lives. So, you know, the science of food, for example. I mean, this is something we all relate to because we all eat food every day. 
um, you know, psychedelics are something that, you know, are really changing the lives of people suffering from depression and terminal illness. And so he's really going to get into that. So I'm super excited about it. Yeah, that book sounds fascinating. I'm really excited about that book as well. So, you know, you're a mom and there's a lot of listeners who are moms and they're busy and you've managed to be a mom and really be productive and successful. So first, how old are your kids and sort of what's your daily routine? Like what do you do to find balance or to be successful? I think it is so hard as a working mom to find balance. You know, I think we're just so tempted to multitask all the time. And all the research has shown that multitasking is actually very unsatisfying, which is why, frankly, so many moms are stressed out. I mean, we know that that women between the ages of like, you know, 30 and 50 are kind of the most depressed population in the country. <laughs> and they're taking very high rates of antidepressants. And it's because they're multitasking all day long. They're pulled in so many directions. Um, so, so finding balance is, has been a huge challenge and it's incredibly important to do it, to figure it out. My kids are now 14 and 16. Oh, they're grown. They're grown. I mean, kind of like the really hard part is over. You know, I don't have to micromanage their every move. <laughs> I, sometimes I wish I could micromanage them a little more because, you know, they're at the age where they're, they think they know everything and they're very independent, but it's also, it's just beautiful to kind of, you know, watch them spread their wings. But as a mom, you know, I for me the nature piece has been huge, and and I you know for for really ever since I've had kids, I've also been someone who takes walks outside by myself or with the dog, or with friends, um, and that's been very centering and grounding for me. Um, it's important to kind of take breaks, you know, away from away from kind of just the intensity of parenting. So you know, if you can tag team with a partner, I think that's really helpful. If you can have groups of other parents, you know, and you can help each other out and support each other, that also just makes it more fun and more sociable and, you know, feel a little bit, you know, less isolating because parenting, I think it can also be a very isolating experience. And then of course, you know, if you can encourage your, your kids to share your interests, <laughs> you know, then you can all keep having fun together. And unfortunately, my kids also love the outdoors. They love kayaking. They love river running. They love hiking. Um, and it's something we can all do together. And it really, I think, helps strengthen us as a family. Well, that's so awesome. I think Shanti, my friend, had had you on her podcast. Um, she runs Hike It Baby. I know Shanti. Yeah, she's terrific. I think she's got a great organization. And what Shanti is trying to do is, is really create a, a large community for women to, um, you know, hike together take their babies out together, support each other. And it's just awesome. And because also the earlier we can connect children to nature, the more they're going to love it as they grow up. And, and she believes that needs to start almost in infancy and toddlerhood. Uh, and so that, that these kids feel comfortable outside, um, they want to be there. And so I, I really support what she's doing. I love Shanti. That's awesome. So you have teens. I did not expect you to have teens. You look really young. So I guess you're an example of someone who spends time in nature, but <laughs> looks young. So good yeah, on you. I, I, I was a child bride. <laughs> you're a child bride. That's hilarious. So any advice? I, I ask every guest this question because 15-year-old seems to be the age where like, it's just really hard, especially for young women. I think young men too, but I know a lot of friends with daughters that are 15 that are sort of struggling right now. Any advice that you would go back and tell your 15-year-old self or just advice that you want to give to teens now? Yeah, you know, I'm really interested in the fate of teens now. I actually think it's much harder to be a 14-year-old or 15-year-old yeah. girl now than it was when I was that age. 
um, you know, just social media alone has has made your appearance, um, your online presence, you know, so urgent all the time. Like we're constantly, these girls are constantly curating their looks. They're getting, you know, really voted on, you know, by how many likes and how many hearts they get on Instagram, you know, 10 times a day. I think the research has shown that that this is like incredibly destructive, right? For people's self-image yeah. if like all you're thinking about is how you look, right? And and so the research has shown, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, and I've talked about it in some of my outside magazine articles, um, again, that the more time these girls spend outside doing active sports, the better body image they have, the less they're worried about their appearance, and the more they're actually finding joy in how their bodies work and how strong they are, right? And that, that's an incredibly important message for girls to get at that age. So these programs, like even like the Girl Scouts, you know, that are getting large, large numbers of girls outside. Um, getting them to love sports, getting them outside. There's been research showing that that women today who spent more time as girls outside actually have more self-esteem, have better self-confidence, and and actually achieve greater income and salary parity with men than than women who didn't spend time outside. So you know we have a bravery wow. gap in this country now between boys and girls. Like more boys identify with being brave than girls do. And, and that gap gets um, projected out into adulthood. You know, there's still sort of a gap in bravery. And so, um, again, I just think the more girls can kind of get outside, um, trust themselves, trust their bodies, learn to love their, how their bodies work, um, you know, the, the happier they're going to be as adults, which is super cool. Oh, that's so awesome. I love that. You know, and I'm so glad I spent a lot of time outside as a kid and my mom just sent me outside because I was a little rambunctious. So I, <laughs> I love believe that it, advice. Shelby, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> any, any just quick advice to those who want to write books? It's not easy. Advice how to write books. Um, again, you know, keep reading, read a lot, read, figure out who you love and um, maybe find some teachers, you know, find some teachers, people who can mentor you. I think it's now it's kind of easier than ever to actually have a voice and publish, you know, whether it's through print or through a blog or through, you know, Twitter or whatever it is. Like, it's really easy now to have a voice where you get a lot of feedback. And I think that's really exciting. So you can kind of develop a voice and actually do it, you know, in a real world and not just in a vacuum. And so it's really fun to experiment with that and play with it. And uh, yeah, I think just, you know, start writing as much as you can and uh, talking to other writers. Lastly, I know you got to go to some cool places, especially Japan and some other parts of the world when researching this book and as a writer and the host of Outside's XX Factor. And I mean, you do so many cool things, the Audible series that we're going to talk about for sure in the outro. If you could live anywhere else in the world, regardless of job and where your kids have to go to school, where would you live? I think I would head for Scandinavia. I think they have really figured it out there. <laughs> you know, there are these fantastic maternal policies, ma maternal leave policies. You know, I, as someone who cares about breastfeeding, for example, you know, in parts of Denmark and Sweden, parts of Scandinavia, these countries give you 15 months of paid maternity leave for every child. And they'll do this for fathers, too. So, you know, there's already off the bat, like, this more kind of equal parenting going on. Um, so just enlightened social policies, but then also I think a really strong connection to nature in many, many parts of Scandinavia. You know, I mentioned Finland and some of their recess policies. 
Um, but, you know, there are just these wonderful parks, you know, in those parts of the world where people people can go skating and long distance ice skating, long distance cross-country ski. It just kind of sounds like paradise, even though it's really dark and cold. And there's, I think, actually excessive drinking, I would say, probably because of all that dark and cold. <laughs> Um, I think these are countries that are socially and environmentally enlightened, and I'm all over it. Awesome. If you could leave us with one message about living more wildly, like any any advice? Okay. I have this kind of little um, saying that I like to repeat, and I kind of stole this idea from Michael Pollan, you know, who says, eat food, not too many, mostly plants. So, so mine is um, go outside. Go often. Bring friends or not and breathe. Florence, it was such a pleasure having you on. You're a total pro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Delvi. It's been super fun. You can get Florence's books, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and No, It's Not a Photo Book, and The Nature Fix, wherever you buy books or also go to her website, florencewilliams.com. Florence has also written some amazing articles for REI's co-op journal, the New York Times, Outside Magazine, National Geographic, and so many more. She's a sought-after speaker, so you can go to her website, find out where she's headed next, and go see her live. She's also the host of an eight-part podcast series herself, which is why she sounded so awesome today. The podcast is called The XX Factor on Outside Magazine's podcast, where she profiles women, including some who've been on and are coming on this show. And she hosted an original podcast series on Audible called Breasts Unbound. So definitely check that out. Florence, thank you for coming on this show. Thank you for writing such awesome books. REI, thank you for encouraging us all to get outside and supplying us with the gear to do it with function and style. Listeners, thank you for writing awesome reviews on iTunes. I so appreciate it. Yes, I keep pushing this into the show, but that is what makes us grow by writing reviews on iTunes. We love reviews. Wherever you're listening, don't forget some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Go get outside. Enjoy. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.